Chapter 1 of the Texan Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mr. Duck. The Texan Star by Joseph A. Outscheller. Chapter 1. A boy and a man sat in a room of a stone house in the ancient city of Mexico, capital in turn of Aztec, Spaniard, and Mexican. They could see through the narrow windows masses of low buildings and tile roofs, and beyond, the swelling shape of great mountains standing clear against the blue sky. But they had looked upon them so often that the mind took no note of the luminous spectacle. The cry of a water-seller or the occasional jingle of a spur came from the street below, but these too were familiar sounds, and they were no longer regarded. The room contained but little furniture, and the door was of heavy oak. Its whole aspect indicated that it was a prison. The man was of middle years, and his face showed a singular blend of kindness and firmness. The pallor of imprisonment had replaced his usual color. The boy was tall and strong, and his cheeks were yet ruddy. His features bore some resemblance to those of his older comrade. "'Ned,' said the man at last, "'it's been good of you to stay with me here, but a prison is no place for a boy. You must secure a release and go back to our people.' The boy smiled, and his face, in repose rather stern for one so young, was illumined in a wonderful manner. "'I don't want to leave you, Uncle Steve,' he said. "'And if I did, it's not likely that I could. This house is strong, and it's a long way from here to Texas.' "'Perhaps I can induce them to let you go,' said the man. "'Why should they wish to hold one so young?' Edward Fulton did not reply, because he saw that Stephen Austin was speaking to himself rather than his companion. Instead, he looked once more through the window and over the city at the vast white peaks of Popocatepetl and Itzaxahuatl, silent and immutable, forever guarding the skyline. Yet they seemed to call him at this moment and tell him of freedom. The words of the man had touched a spring within him, and he wanted to go. He could not conceal from himself the fact that he longed for liberty with every pulse and fiber. But he resolved, nevertheless, to stay. He would not desert the one who he had come to serve. Stephen Austin, the real founder of Texas, had now been in prison in Mexico more than a year. Coming to Saltillo to secure for the Texans better treatment from the Mexicans, their rulers, he had been seized and held as a criminal. The boy, Edward Fulton, was not really his nephew, but an orphan, the son of a cousin. He owed much to Austin, and coming to the capital to help him, he was sharing his imprisonment. They say that Santa Anna now has the power, said Ned, breaking the somber silence. It's true, said Stephen Austin. It is a new and strong reason why I fear for our people. Of all the cunning and ambitious men in Mexico, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana is the most cunning and ambitious. I know, too, that he is the most able, and I believe that he is the most dangerous of those to us who have settled in Texas. What a country is this, Mexico! Revolution after revolution! You make a treaty with one president today, and tomorrow another disclaims it. More than one of them has a touch of genius, and yet it is obscured by childishness and cruelty. He sighed heavily. Ned, full of sympathy, glanced at him but said nothing. Then his gaze turned back to the mighty peaks, which stood so sharp and clear against the blue. Truth and honesty were the most marked qualities of Stephen Austin, and he could not understand the vast web of intrigue in which the Mexican capital was continually involved. And to the young mind of the boy, cast in the same mold, it was yet more baffling and repellent. Ned still stared at the guardian peaks, but his thoughts floated away from them. His head had been full of old romance when he entered the Vale of Tenochtitlan. 
He had almost seen Cortez and his conquistadors in their visible forms with their armor clanking about them as they stalked before him. He had eagerly gazed upon the lakes, the mighty mountains, the low houses, and the strange people. Here, deeds of which the world still talked had been done centuries ago, and his thrill was strong and long. But the feeling was gone now. He had liked many of the Mexicans and many of the Mexican traits, but he had felt with increasing force that he could never reach out his hand and touch anything solid. He thought of volcanic beings on a volcanic soil. The throb of a drum came from the street below, and presently the shrill sound of fifes was mingled with a steady beat. Ned stood up and pressed his head as far forward as the bars of the windows would let him. Soldiers, a regiment, I think, he said. Ah, I can see them now. What brilliant uniforms their officers wear. Austin also looked out. Yes, he said. They know how to dress for effect, and their music is good, too. Listen how they play. It was a martial air, given with a splendid lilt and swing. The tune crept into Ned's blood, and his hand beat time on the stone sill. But the music increased his longing for liberty. His thoughts passed away from the narrow street and the marching regiment to the north, to the wild free plains beyond the Rio Grande. It was there his heart was, and it was there that his body would be. It is General Koss who leads them, said Austin. I can see him now, riding upon a white horse. It is the man in the white and silver uniform, Ned. He is the brother-in-law of Santa Anna, is he not? Yes, and I fear him. I know well, Ned, that he hates the Texans, all of us. Perhaps the regiment that we see now is going north against our people. Austin's brows contracted. It may be so, he said, but they give us soft words all the time, and yet they hold me a prisoner here. It would be like them to strike while pretending to clear away all the troubles between us. He sighed again. Ned watched the soldiers until the last of them had passed the window, and he listened to the music, the sound of drum and fife, until it died away, and they heard only the usual murmur of the city. Then the homesickness, the longing for the great free country to the north, grew upon him and became almost overpowering. Someone comes, said Austin. They heard the sound of the heavy bar that closed the door being moved from its place. Our dinner, doubtless, said Austin, but it's early. The door swung wide and a young Mexican officer entered. He was taller and fairer than most of his race, evidently of pure northern Spanish blood, and his countenance was frank and fine. Welcome, Lieutenant, said Stephen Austin, speaking in Spanish, which he, as well as Ned, understood perfectly. You know that we are always glad to see you here. Lieutenant Alfonso de Zavala smiled in a quick, responsive way, but in a moment his face became grave. I announce a visitor, a most distinguished visitor, Mr. Austin, he said. General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, President of the Mexican Republic and Commander-in-Chief of its armies and navies. Both Mr. Austin and the boy arose and bowed as a small man of middle years, slender and nervous, strode into the room, standing for a few moments near its center and looking about him like a questing hawk. His was, in truth, an extraordinary presence. He seemed to radiate an influence that at once attracted and repelled. His dark features were cut sharply and clearly. His eyes, set close together, were of the most intense black that Ned had ever seen in a human head. Nor were those eyes ever at rest. They roamed over everything, and they seemed to burn every object for the single instant they fell there. They never met the gaze of either American squarely, although they continually came back to both. This man was clothed in a white uniform, heavy with gold stripes and gold epaulets. A small sword at his side had a gold hilt set with a diamond. 
He wore a three-cornered hat shaped like that of Napoleon, but instead of the Corsican simple gray, his was bright in color and splendid with plumage. He was at once a powerful and sinister figure. Ned felt that he was in the presence of genius, but it belonged to one of those sinuous creatures, shining and terrible, that are bred under the vivid sun of the tropics. There was a singular sensation at the roots of his hair, but resolved to show neither fear nor apprehensions. He stood and gazed directly at Santa Anna. "'Be seated, Mr. Austin,' said the general, "'and close the doors, Zavala, but remain with us. Your young relative can remain also. I have things of importance to say, but it is not forbidden to him also to hear them.' Ned sat down, and so did Mr. Austin and young de Zavala, but Santa Anna remained standing. It seemed to Ned that he did so because he wished to look down upon them from a height and all the time the black eyes, like two burning coals, played restlessly around the room. Ned was unable to take his own eyes away. The figure in its gorgeous uniform was so full of nervous energy that it attracted like a magnet, while at the same time it bade all who opposed to beware. The boy felt as if he were before a splendid leopard with no bars of a cage between. Santa Anna took three or four rapid steps back and forth. He kept his hat upon his head, a right, it seemed, due to his superiority to other people. He looked like a man who had a great thought which he was shaping into quick words. Presently, he stopped before Austin and shot him one of those piercing glances. My friend and guest, he said in sonorous Spanish. Austin bowed. Whether the subtle Mexican meant the words in satire or in earnest, he did not know, nor did he care greatly. When I call you my friend and guest, I speak truth, said Santa Anna. It is true that we brought you here from Saltillo, and we insist that you accept our continued hospitality. But it is because we know how devoted you are to our common Mexico, and we would have you here at our right hand for advice and help. Ned saw Mr. Austin smile a little sadly. It all seemed very strange to the boy. How could one talk of friendship and hospitality to those whom he held as prisoners? Why could not these people say what they meant? Again, he longed for the free winds of the plains. You and I together should be able to quiet these troublesome Texans, continued Santa Anna, and his voice became a hard metallic quality that rasped the boy's nerves. You know, Stephen Austin, that I in Mexico have endured much from the people whom you have brought within our borders. They shed good Mexican blood at the fort Velasco, and they have attacked us elsewhere. They do not pay their taxes or obey our decrees, and when I send my officers to make them obey, they take down their long rifles. Austin smiled again, and now the watching boy thought the smile was not sad at all. If Santa Anna took notice, he gave no sign. But you are reasonable, continued the Mexican, and now his manner was winning to an extraordinary degree. It was my predecessor, Farias, who brought you here, but I would not see you go because I love you like a brother. And now I have come to you, that between us we may calm your turbulent Texans. But you must bear in mind, said Austin, that our rights have been taken from us. All the clauses of our charter have been broken, and now your Congress has decreed that we shall have only one soldier to every five hundred inhabitants, and that all the rest of us shall be disarmed. How are we, in a wild country, to protect ourselves from the Comanches, Lipans, and other Indians who roam everywhere, robbing and murdering? Austin's face, usually so benevolent, flushed and his eyes were very bright. Ned looked intently at Santa Anna to see how he would take the daring and truthful indictment. But the Mexican showed no confusion, only astonishment. He threw up his hands in a vivid southern gesture and looked at Austin in surprised reproof. 
My friend, he said in injured but not angry tones, how can you ask me such a question? Am I not here to protect the Texans? Am I not president of Mexico? Am I not head of the Mexican army? My gallant soldiers, my horsemen with their lances and sabers, will draw a ring around the Texans through which no Comanche or Lipan, however daring, will be able to break. He spoke with such fire, such appearance of earnestness, that Ned, despite a mind uncommonly keen and analytical in one so young, was forced to believe for a moment. Texas, however, was far and immense, and there were not enough soldiers in all America to put a ring around the wild Comanches. But the impression remained longer with Austin, who was ever hoping for the best and ever seeing the best in others. Ned was a silent boy who had suffered many hardships, and he had acquired the habit of thought in which its turn brought observation and judgment. Yet if Santa Anna was acting, he was doing it with consummate skill, and the boy who never said a word watched him all the time. Santa Anna began to talk now of the great future that awaited the Texans under the banner of Mexico. He poured forth the words in so much Latin fervor that it was almost like listening to a song. Ned felt the influence of the musical roll coming over him again, but with an effort of the will that was almost physical, he shook it off. Santa Anna painted the picture of a dream, a gorgeous dream of many colors. Mexico was to become a mighty country, and the Texans, with their cool courage and martial energy, would be no mean factor in it. Austin would be one of his lieutenants, a sharer in his greatness and reward. His eloquence was wonderful, and Ned felt once more the fascination of the serpent. This was a man to whom only the grand and magnificent appealed, and already he had achieved a part of his dream. Ned moved a little closer to the window. He wished the fresh air to blow upon his face. He saw that Mr. Austin was fully under the spell. Santa Anna was making the most beautiful and convincing promises. He himself was going to Texas. He was the father of his people. He would right every wrong. He loved the Texans, these children of the North, who had come to his country for a home. No one could ever say that he appealed in vain to Santa Anna for protection. Texans would be proud that they were part of Mexico and they would be glad to belong to a nation which already had a glorious history, and to come to a capital which had more splendor and romance than any other in America. Ned literally withdrew his soul within itself. He sought to shut out the influence that was radiating from this singular and brilliant figure, but he saw that Mr. Austin was falling more deeply under it. Look, said Santa Anna, taking the man by the arm in the familiar manner that one old friend has with another and drawing him to the window. Is it not this a prospect to enchant? Is not this capital of which you and I can well be proud? He lifted a forefinger and swept a half-curve that could be seen from the window. It was truly a panorama that would kindle the heart of the dullest. Forty miles away, the white crests of Papacatel and Ixahuatl still showed against the background of a burning blue, like pillars supported the dome of heaven. Along the whole line of the half-curve were mountains in fold on fold, Below the green of the valley showed the waters of the lake, both fresh and salt, gleaming with gold, where the sunlight shot down upon them. Nearer rose the spires of the cathedral, and then the sea of tile roofs burnished by the vivid beams. Santa Anna stood in a dramatic position, his finger still pointing. There was scarcely a day that Ned did not feel the majesty of this valley of Tenochtitlan. But Santa Anna deepened the spell. Could the world hold another place its equal? Might not the Texans indeed have a glorious future in the land of which this city was the capital? Poetry and romance appealed powerfully to the boy's thoughtful mind, and he felt that here in Mexico he was at their very heart. Nothing else had ever moved him so much. 
You are pleased. It impresses you, said Santa Anna to Austin. I can see it on your face. You are with us. You are one of us. Ah, my friend, how noble it is to have a great heart. Do I go with your message to the Texans? asked Austin. I must leave now, but I shall come again soon, and I will tell you all. You shall carry words that will satisfy every one of them. He threw his arms about Austin's shoulders, gave Ned a quick salute, and then left the room, taking young Dezavala with him. Ned heard the heavy bar fall in place on the outside of the door, and he knew that they were shut in as tightly as ever. But Mr. Austin was in a glow. What a wonderful, flexible mind, he said more to himself than to the boy. I could have preferred a sort of independence for Texas, but since we're to be ruled from the city of Mexico, Santa Ana will do the best he can for us. As soon as he sweeps away the revolutionary troubles, he will repair all our injuries. Nedwood was silent. He knew that the generous Austin was still under Santa Anna's magnetic spell. But after his departure, the whole room was changed to the boy. He saw clearly again. There were no mists or clouds about his mind. Moreover, the wonderful half-curve before the window was changing. Vapors were rolling up from the south, and the two great peaks faded from view. Trees and water in the valley changed to gray. The skies, which had been so bright now, became somber and menacing. The boy felt a deep fear at his heart, but Mr. Austin seemed to be yet under the influence of Santa Anna, and talked cheerfully of their speedy return to Texas. Ned listened in silence and unbelief, while the gloom outside deepened, and night presently came over Anahuac. But he had formed his resolution. He owed much to Mr. Austin. He had come a vast distance to be at his side and to serve him in prison, but he felt now that he could be of more use elsewhere. Moreover, he must carry a message, a warning to those who needed it solely. One of the windows opened upon the north, and he looked intently through it trying to pierce, with the mind's eye at least, the thousand miles that lay between him and those whom he would reach with the word. Mr. Austin had lighted a candle. Noticing the boy's gloomy face, he patted him on the head with a benignant hand and said, don't be down of heart, Edward, my lad. We'll soon be on our way to Texas. But this is Mexico, and it is Santa Ana who holds us. That is true, and it is Santa Ana who is our best friend. Ned did not dispute the sanguine saying. He saw that Mr. Austin had his opinion, and he had his. The door was opened again in a half hour, and a soldier brought them their supper. Young de Zavala, who was their immediate guardian, also entered and stood by while they ate. They had never received poor food, and tonight Mexican hospitality exerted itself, at the insistence of Santa Anna, Ned surmised. In addition to the regular supper, there was an ice and a bottle of Spanish wine. The president had just given an order that the greatest courtesy be shown to you at all times, said de Zavala, and I am very glad. I, too, have people in that territory of ours from which you come, Texas. He spoke with undeniable sympathy, and Ned felt his heart warm towards him. But he decided to say nothing. He feared that he might betray by some chance word the plan he had in mind. But Mr. Austin, believing in others because he was so truthful and honest himself, talked freely. All our troubles will soon be over, he said to de Zavala. I hope so, senor, said the young man earnestly. By and by, when de Zavala and the soldier were gone, Ned went again to the window, stood there a few moments to harden his resolution, and then came back to the man. Mr. Austin, he said, I'm going to ask your consent to something. The Texan looked up in surprise. Why, Edward, my lad, he said kindly, you don't have to ask my consent for anything, after the way in which you have already sacrificed yourself for me. 
But I'm not going to stay with you any longer, Mr. Austin. That is, if I can help it. I'm going back to Texas. Mr. Austin laughed. It was a mellow and satisfied laugh. So you are, Edward, he said, and I am going with you. You will help me to bear a message of peace and safety to the Texans. Ned paused a moment, irresolute. There was no change in his determination. He was merely uncertain about the words to use. There may be delays, he said at last, and, Mr. Austin, I have decided to go alone, and within the next day or two if I can. The Texan's face clouded. I cannot understand you, he said. Why this hurry? It would, in reality, be a breach of faith to our great friend Santa Anna. That is, if you could go. I don't believe you can. Ned was troubled. He was tempted to tell what was in his mind, but he knew that he would not be believed. So he fell back again upon his infinite capacity for silence. Mr. Austin read resolution in the closed lips and rigid figure. Do you really mean that you will attempt to steal away? He asked. As soon as I can. The man shook his head. It would be better not to do so, he said. But you are your own master, and I see I cannot dissuade you from the attempt. But, boy, you will promise me not to take any unnecessary or foolish risks. I promise gladly, and, Mr. Austin, I hate to leave you here. Their quarters were commodious, and Ned slept alone in a small room to the left of the main apartment. It was a bare place with only a bed and a chair, but it was lighted by a fairly large window. Ned examined this window critically. It had a horizontal iron bar across the middle, and it was about thirty feet from the ground. He pulled at the iron bar with both hands, but, although rusty with time, it would not move in its socket. Then he measured the two spaces between the bar and the wall. Hope sprang up in the boy's heart. Then he did a strange thing. He removed nearly all his clothing and tried to press his head and shoulders between the bar and the wall. His head, which was of the long, narrow type, so common in the scholar, would have gone through the aperture had it not been for his hair, which was long and grew uncommonly thick. His shoulders were very thick and broad as they, too, halted him. He drew back and felt a keen thrill of disappointment. But he was a boy who usually clung tenaciously to an idea, and, sitting down, he concentrated his mind upon the plan that he had formed. By and by, a possible way out came to him. Then he lay down upon the bed, drew a blanket over him because the night was chill in the city of Mexico, and calmly sought sleep. End of chapter one. Reading by Mr. Duck.